y'all, man. It's been two years, two years too long since I've been here. So it's good to be back here. Spent nine years in this room with students from Jackson State. And so uh, it brings me great joy to be uh, with you this, this afternoon, well, this evening. So uh, we're looking at the theme of Scripture this week. And, um, you know, when they asked me to do it, they kind of asked me, hey, do you want to do something else? Because Scripture's kind of hard. I said, no, let, let's do it. Just bring it on. So uh, this is not going to be academic. It's going to be, I, my hope is that it'll be pastoral. It'll be helpful and beneficial. So um, I want to start with this. Separation anxiety is real. Um, I have a seven-year-old son, and when he was three, we put him in the daycare at Jackson State. And at Jackson State, right below my office, there was a Chick-fil-A. And so I tried to sort of cover my bases, took my son to Chick-fil-A to get breakfast, took him up to my office to eat. We actually sat down to eat breakfast together. And then I walked him about 200 yards from my office to the daycare on campus, thinking that I'm covering my bases, that, that he'll be okay, that he will know that daddy's just a rock throw away, and it did not matter. That as soon as I left, he burst into tears and cried and came running out after me. It's separation anxiety. Uh, believe it or not, that, that's not limited to children, that adults can experience this as well, especially when we drop our kids off at college, that many of your parents probably cried on their way homes, that once they got home and did not see you occupying that space, that there was something kind of going on, like, will they be okay? Will they make it? Will they have good friends? Will they party responsibly? Will they go to class? I mean, th this is what parents think about. But it's not even limited to people. They're dogs, right? They're certain dogs when their owners sort of board them up that they kind of go through this withdrawal, the separation, anxiety. Here's the point, that if you love people well, that you will inevitably encounter those moments of anxiety when you're apart. Because at the foundation of love, it's not just time and it's not just acts that show that I love you, but it's also this thing called presence just being with someone, and simply being apart can start to evoke these feelings of anxiety. Will my dad come back and get me? Are they going to take care of my son like I would take care of my son? Will they walk my dog like I would walk my dog? Right? Separation anxiety. Well, here's the thing. You might not know it, but when we signed up to work for RUF, we signed up for perpetual separation anxiety. What do I mean? You guys come into our lives, and I will say our and we, because very much a part of me is still with RUF, and I'm speaking on behalf of your campus staff and interns. When you come into our lives, we love you, and we care about you. And I'm going to let you into a little secret that they probably don't say enough. We worry about you. We worry about what happens when you're not on campus. We worry about when you go home in the summer. Will you come back and identify with this group, or was this just a fad that you were sort of working through? We worry about you seniors when you graduate. And many of you who are seniors, you probably were in senior dinners, and there were probably some tears shed. We worry, because as much as the good things in life that await you, we also know that there are hardships that await you as well. 
Some of you will get cancer. And some of you will endure a divorce. And some of you will have miscarriages. And we wonder if you will keep the faith. And we wonder in 10 years, will you still be walking with Jesus? Separation anxiety. Children, adults, dogs, pastors. The passage that we're going to look at tonight, it's been a balm for my soul for many years because it's been a place that I've turned to to know that you will be okay. And so I'm going to read the scripture, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive right in. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we'll start at verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, but we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted you, each one of you, and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face because he wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we ask your blessing now upon our time. We pray that you would indeed speak through your servant and that your people would receive your word for what it really is, and that is the word of the living God. May you work by your spirit to change us for Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. Now, why did I start with separation anxiety? I know that seems kind of out there in left field, but it's actually what Paul is feeling in this text, that when you understand the Apostle Paul, then you understand his unique calling as a church planter. So when you look at your New Testament, you'll see a ton of books, right? Ephesians and Galatians and Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and Colossians. You know, those are like real cities. And if you go read the book of Acts, those are cities where Paul actually went in to plant churches. 
Now, here's the thing, that, that certain cities received Paul with joy. Certain cities allowed Paul to come in, and he set up shop, and he had months and almost a year of profitable ministry. Other cities did not receive him. That there were times when Paul could say his goodbyes to the, the Ephesian elders, and there were other times where he was literally sent out of the city at night. Thessalonica is one of those cities. If you go back and read Acts 17, he only got to stay there for three Sabbath days, which we think is about three weeks to a month. And the town was so uh, against his presence that there was a mob that was formed, that they were about to beat this cat named Jason, that they arrested him and took some money. I mean, it was go, go back and read Acts 17. And then he had to leave in the night. He could not say goodbye to his church. He had, to be, he had to go out. And so when you see it in our text, look at what it says in verse, look at what it says in, in verse 17 of chapter 2. But since we were torn away from you. You see that phrase right there? Paul is describing what happened in Acts 17. He literally was torn away from this church against his own will. And so what you get in this passage is this anxiety. Will they be okay? Did I minister in vain? Are they still following the Lord? These are my babies. These are my children. And yet, in the midst of that context of anxiety and fear, notice what he says in verse 13. But I thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. You see what's happening? In the midst of his anxiety and frustration and doubts, he says, you know what? There is one thing that I'm thankful for, that while I was there, they received and heard the word of God. And so it is the word of God in Paul's mind that will keep this church. You know, I, when I first got married, um, been married for my, married my wife in 2004, and I remember within a month of getting married, there was this guy who kind of came out in front of us, and we were driving, and she was kind of looking out of the window, and he kind of came, he turned out, and I had to jam the brakes. And, and so this was just me and my new husband behavior. I kind of put my hand out like this, right? Kind of, I put my hand out while I'm driving, and I'm putting my hand, and she had her seatbelt on. And so after the whole ordeal, she was like, what was that about? She said, do you really think you can keep me from flying out of a window, right? The seatbelt was holding her. But there was something in me that, 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 that was moved to at least to try to protect. That's what's happening in this text, Right? that there is danger in front of them. And Paul is panicking. He is worried. And yet, in the midst of his worry, there is one thing that's keeping him safe. And he said, it's the word of God. Now, what I want to do is sort of unpack why his confidence was in the word. And the first reason is that he says the word works. Now, there's a play on word in this text, and you can see it. You, you see it 
uh, right up there in verse 9. Look at what it says in verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor. So right there, underline labor. If you underline in your Bibles, underline labor and underline toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim the gospel of God. And so Paul did not throw away his shot, right? I know y'all listen to Hamilton. I would not throw away my shot, you know. This is what Paul is saying. I, I did not waste my time. He says, when I was there, I worked hard. As a matter of fact, we're going to look at it later this week in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul kind of had this chip on his shoulder, his entire ministry, because he was not one of the, uh, the, the apostles who had a chance to spend three years with Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, he speaks of himself as being one untimely born. He speaks of himself as being the least of the apostles. And he says, because of that, I worked harder than all the other apostles. And so here it is right here. You expect Paul. He is saying, I go hard in the paint, right? Like, I go hard. I work hard. And this isn't just working in the gospel, right? He does that. This is a separate kind of work. What we think is happening here is that Paul is working hard at tent making, that his, 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 the way that he did ministry was to go in town to find a job, to repair tents, and to work and to take care of himself so that he could preach the gospel free of charge to the people he loved. He says, I will not be a burden to you. You will not suspect my motives. I will get a job and I will work and I will sweat and I will burn it on both ends. I will be a faithful laborer. And that's what he's saying in the text. I worked hard. I labored. I toiled night and day that we might not be a burden to you. He says, like a father, I worked and I exhorted you. You see what Paul is doing? He's taking their minds back to him having a job and him working very, 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 very hard to not be a burden. And then notice the play on words. Paul is not the only thing working in Thessalonica. Look at what it says about the word of God. Look again at verse 13. You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Look at that next phrase, which is at work in you believers. You see that? I worked really, 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 really hard. And there is something out there that works harder than me. And it is the word of God. It toils and it labors and it is alive and it sweats and it gets up and it does its work and it's been working from the foundations of the world when God spoke everything into existence by his powerful word. What Paul is saying, you will be safe. Because the word of God is alive and it works and it moves and it accomplishes everything God intends it to do. It works. It's a force to be reckoned with. And I know, right, this is just like paper and glue and ink. And Paul says, do not be deceived. 
This is powerful. It is alive. I don't know if you thought about it, but all the work that goes into getting you all to summer conference, right? When I was at Jackson State, we used to have to fundraise. We would do fish fries. We would sell fish plates. We would do car washes. We would sell raffle tickets. We would do work days. And that's just on my little campus that when you step back and think about everything it takes to make summer conference happen, who's going to teach us a, a seminar, a two-day or a four-day? Who's going to be over parking? Who's going to be over security? Who's going to be over recreation? Who's going to be over food? How do we know when schools can come, this week or this week? Who's going to do music? What songs are we going to sing? Who's going to clean up? You, you, when you step back and look at all the work that goes into this week alone, it's good. And you want to know what God says? You work hard so that this work right here can keep doing more work when you leave. That's the promise from God. We work hard. And this word right here will keep going. I don't know if you've seen the Energizer commercials. I love the Energizer bunny. My favorite one is when he, he's at this all right, I see some blank. Do you, you know the Energizer Bunny? <laughs> All right, so the Energizer Bunny, right? So he has this little bunny, pink bunny with this doors. I think it's an Energizer battery in his back. And he just beats his drum. He just kind of shows up at your tea party. He shows up at your pool party. He just shows up everywhere. He enters the screen, does this little dance and moves, and then he keeps going. Then the, the, you might see him come back on two commercials later, and he comes back again. My favorite one is when he's in the desert. He's in the desert, and these vultures are kind of, they're, they're kind of waiting for him to die. And he just kind of beats this drum all through the desert. Boom, 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 boom. And after these buzzers just follow him, follow him. And then you, you see these carcasses of these other animals that have died out there in the desert that they have eaten. And then you see one buzzard after another. Boom. It dies. It dies. It dies. And then it shows this energizer bunny that kind of does this circle around him. He says, and it keeps going and going, and going, and going. And he rides off into the sunset as if to communicate, he never stops working. That is a helpful image for the word of God. It does not get tired. It's always working. Now, if the word of God works, which Paul says it does, then we should want to know, well, what does it do when it goes to work, right? How many of you watched Martin growing up? You can raise your hand. It's cool. All right, maybe 2% of you. That's good. All right. I see you back there. So there, there's this underlying joke in Martin, and it has to do with this guy named Tommy, right? So everybody knows who Tommy is but no one can figure out what Tommy does for a living. And so he's like getting joked. I mean, you'll see it kind of, it'll come in and it'll come out. Where he works, he works, but nobody knows what he does. Here's the thing about the word of God. It is not like Tommy. Paul says it works, and I can show you exactly what it does when it goes to work which leads us to our second point, 
And our final point, that the word of God is powerful to change. So it's, it, it works, and when it works, it brings about real change. Now, the first thing I want you to think about is that the word of God conforms us from something, and the word of God conforms us to something. And so what does it conform us away from? That's sort of the first question. Well, let me give you, what happens when you stick your hand into an open flame on accident? You don't even have to think about moving it. Like your body is so averse to pain that if you feel it, you you don't have to think about it. What happens when you're falling? You do not have to think about bracing yourself, right? That it just happens automatically. What happens if you're in a fight? And I, I've been in a few fights growing up, and you're, you end up on the ground, right? And somebody's about to stomp you. Or, I mean, I, I know I'm being really dramatic, but, <laughs> but what happens? You get in this fetal position, right? that these are all self-protecting mechanisms built into the way that we live and think that is averse to pain. And what you see in this text is that these people, look at what it says in verse 14, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen. So right there, underline suffering. Nobody wants to suffer. This word is doing something. It's conforming them away from self-preservation, but it's also conforming them away from cultural preservation. And so what do I mean by that? That, that if you're in any group, there are always these sort of unspoken rules of engagement. We talk this way, we dress this way, we vote this way, we worship this way. That, that Just study humanity and you will watch people sort of come together around these shared ideas. One lady writes this, if a group of users can determine its own membership, including those who agree to the use of the resources according to their agreed-upon rules and excluding those who do not agree on these rules, then the group has made an important first step toward the development of a greater trust and community. We do this in politics. We do this in, if you're in a fraternity or a sorority, we're going to dress like this or talk like this or party like this. We do it with our, in, in our majors. We're going to study with people who major like we major. We do it with our money. If, if I make this, if I'm in this income bracket, I want to live here and drive here and educate my kids here, that there is something in us that has this aversion from diversity. We have this movement towards sameness. And what you see in this text, I mean, you see it in the text, is that these people, first thing, they're enduring suffering. That's like leaving your hand on the eye when it's hot. Nobody wants to do that. But they are suffering at the hands of their own countrymen. Look at the text. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen. Do you see that in their own city, 
where they would have wanted to preserve relationships and would have wanted to preserve community, that they're now being betrayed, where they wanted to protect their own lives, that they're now suffering and doing it joyfully. They're being conformed from the norm. And here's the thing, they're being conformed to something else. Look at what it says in verse 14. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. You hear what Paul is saying? You're suffering. And you're suffering at the hands of people you know and love. And that is otherworldly. And you are starting to look and act like the church in Judea as they were being persecuted by their own people, you're starting to look different. Now, if you know your geography, Thessalonica is up here and Judea is like over here. So we're talking about a thousand miles southeast that this church up here in Thessalonica is starting to look like this church a thousand miles away. You know that it's, they're separated by culture. They're separated by geography. They're separated by language. But something common is happening. That this young church starts to look like this church over here. A new culture, a new ethic is being birthed where it is okay to suffer. And it's not that they are ultimately being conformed to the church. They're being conformed to Jesus. Their lives are starting to look like the one who loves them and gave himself up for them. They're starting to look and act like the one who is the son of God who came and lived a life they could not die and who suffered for their sins on, on their behalf on the cross. Now, all of a sudden, by faith, they're starting to not just look like the church in Judea. They're looking like Jesus. They're looking like their savior. What's causing this? It's the word of God, the word of God putting this Jesus in front of you week in and week out. It changes. And so I love what Paul Tripp says about this in his book. I think it's dangerous calling. He reads from Isaiah 55, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but they water the earth making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish 
that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent. And here's the catch. Listen to this one. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break into the singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands together. Here's the key in verse 13. Instead of the thorn shall come up a cypress. Instead of a briar shall come up a myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that must not be cut off. Here's what Tripp goes on to say about that passage. Most of us know the first part. God's word will not return to him void. It will accomplish the purpose for which he sends it. That's good. He says that's not even the best news in the text. He says, I'm, I'm always left as a crazy man when I hear this text without unpacking the critical question that it leaves. What then is the purpose for the word? Why do we have it? Why does God send it? The second stanza of the passage answers the first. When the rain and snow fall, notice what happens in verse 13. Instead of a thorn coming up, a cypress tree shall come up. Instead of a briar shall come up a myrtle. If you have a little thorn bush in your backyard and you water it, you expect a bigger thorn bush. But not with the word of God. When this rain falls on the thorn bush, it becomes something organically different, a cypress tree. The picture here is a fundamental, specific, and personal transformation. When the word of God is taught, and read, and it's empowered by the Spirit, it falls down upon people, and we become supernaturally and organically different. The one who lusts will make a covenant with his eyes. The one who is quick to anger will become one who is patient. The one who has idols, that they will begin to come out. That his whole point is that lusting people become pure. Thieves become givers. Demanding people become servants. Angry people become peacemakers. Complainers become thankful. And idolaters come to joyfully worship the one true God. This is the ultimate purpose of the word of God. It is not theological information, but radical transformation. It will come upon you and it will change you. You can endure a divorce and you can endure cancer and you can endure suffering and hardship because this word of God over you empowered by the Spirit, reminding you that you are beloved, you are a son or a daughter in the Lord. It can make you, and it will make you stand. It will make you different. We become like what we behold. And as we rub against the Word of God, and the Spirit of God, 
and we hear more about the Savior from God, God promises, I will change you, that there is future grace out there for you that will be ready for you when the future comes because my word will equip you and keep you and change you. And so, I always get sort of frustrated with, Lord, I'm not here yet, I'm not this yet, and I come, sort of come back to this, but through your word, you are making me new. So in separation anxiety, it is normal to leave something with a child or a pet. That you might wanna leave your daughter a blanket that smells like home And even though they're away, they're reminded of home. God's word is like that. It's a reminder of home. It's a reminder of what he's doing and has done. And so all I want you to take away from tonight, the word of God works. And the word of God changes Now, tomorrow we're going to look at how to read the word, because when you study this text, you actually read that it was the Jews who killed Jesus, and they were people of the word. So there must be a way to read this word that leads to life, and there's a way to read this word that does not And that's what we're going to look at tomorrow night. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you. And thank you for these small but glorious promises. Your word works when we don't see it, when we don't understand it. When we resist it, it is strong and it is mighty. And your word changes. What great news that you have not only saved us, but you have promised to transform us. What good news is that you will do this, that you will take the leading role not only in our salvation, but in our sanctification, that you will conform us to the image of Christ and you will use these means and you will use your spirit. And so we're free to cooperate with you, to expose ourselves to you. And so I pray that we would do that this week. Access in Christ's name. Amen.